We're going to start today by getting you caught up on our road trip. So far, we've been to Nashville, Tennessee, McDowell County, West Virginia, Indiana, Ohio, and Camp Friedenswald in Michigan. From Michigan, we hopped on a train. Here we are on our first train ever to... Chicago, Illinois. We were on our way back to the East Coast, but on the way we had a layover in Chicago for just six hours. Here we are in the Windy City, walking along the pier. We packed a lot in in Chicago. We found the bean and took a couple pictures, of course, walked along the lake, listened to some Hungarian violinists, ate some great food, and wandered through downtown, and... We just had the best interview ever with the coolest person ever. Veronica Kyle. That's a good thing. We sat down for an interview. My name is Veronica Kyle. I work for Faith in Place as the Chicago Outreach Director, and we are in Chicago, Illinois, at our main office. We heard some familiar ideas from Veronica, ideas that took us back to conversations we had with Randy Green from Episode 1 and Matthew Groats from Episode 2. The people who will suffer the most are abusing the earth the least. Okay? That's the bottom line. But then she took things a step further. It's just that for some reason, like everything in this world, and particularly in America, it all comes down to race and class. Our conversation on climate change started to sound more like a conversation on inequality. Particularly in poor communities, women and children bear the brunt of environmental injustice. Women and so that brings us to our episode today. Welcome to Shifting Climates, where we attempt to rehumanize the conversation on climate change. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Michaela Mast. Thanks for joining us. We ended our last episode with some questions. Who are we overlooking, and what do they have to teach us? Those people, we've begun to understand that the impact of climate change is far-reaching, not just in numbers, but because the causes of climate change and the underlying values that perpetuate those causes are intertwined with long-standing patterns of injustice. So today we'll continue uncovering the layers. We'll be talking about bodies in an attempt to continue rehumanizing the impact of climate change. The elemental nature of our own bodies, exploitation of the feminine, and brown and black bodies on the front lines of environmental devastation. We'll begin by hearing more from Veronica Kyle. But the fact that we're now like going to apple orchards together mm-hmm. and doing stewardship at a CSA together, and, and we went camping, people, do you know what it's like? 17, 18 black folk camping. <laughs> Veronica works for Faith in Place, an organization based in Chicago. In the past 20 years, Faith in Place has worked with over 1,000 faith communities across Illinois that are committed to caring for the earth. They work to protect common land, air, and water, and run programs related to energy and climate change, sustainable food and land use, water preservation, and advocacy. You know, you call it a hike, we call it a walk, you know what I'm saying? But these connections of 
and people coming together to not only learn green and do green. This is when you see God like stirring in the green mix. You know, I always call it, I tell my husband, I said, listen, this is like that green, that little green ingredient called relationship building. You can't organize people. You can't build community if you don't have relationships, Mm -hmm. right? As Chicago's community outreach coordinator, Veronica believes deeply that facilitating sustainability efforts is actually a way of facilitating citywide relationships. We have this model at Faith in Place where we say we get in where we fit in. Some people might want a community garden, they want to grow food, somebody want to learn how to recycle, somebody compost. Somebody wants to just, you know, what about the basement flooding? What can we do? Some people have no idea what they want to do. They just know they want to do something because they feel spiritually called. And so we try to provide those tools. Veronica's work takes her to all types of neighborhoods within Chicago, so she's in tune with the disproportionate impact of environmental harms on a variety of groups, including the lower class, people of color, and women. And it's not like putting down the men or the brothers, so please on this podcast don't think Veronica's anti-men. I'm just saying the burden usually of the family and of survival, and particularly in more economically challenged communities, it sits heavily on the women. Aside from her personal experiences, Veronica is also a bit of an expert in this field. She got her master's in gender and development studies from the University of the West Indies. There's all of these ways that when environmental injustices are in a community, it is usually women and children who absorb it on a day-to-day basis, whether it's you know, lack of access to healthy food. So where does she go find food? What are her choices for preparing nutritious meals? If it's about water, where do you get it? When that basement floods and all of a sudden the clothes and the furniture and everything is molded, if you do not have the economic means to eradicate that mold or move, you're stuck in that. You know, I was talking about this the other day with somebody. I said, wow, if we started to have floods in some of our communities, you know, I was thinking about many of the single women in the community where I live. I'm like, they've got to leave with the kids on their back. Where do they go? Usually probably to another woman's house, you know. As you can imagine, these problems compound to put women and children at a higher risk of health complications, which introduces yet another layer of inequality. You know, I was just reading this article um, just recently about African-American women in the healthcare system and here I am, a woman with multiple degrees. And one of the, the main things that came out, and this is doctors and researchers, that we're not even diagnosed with a sense of, of thoroughness and urgency very often as with our white women, you know, our white sisters. But in Veronica's experience, not only are women most impacted, particularly those of color, they also show up to advocate for their communities. You know, people on the podcast can't see what you guys see, but we have these big giant poster boards here with our, you know, three main connectors to educate people, to connect them to the resources, and to advocate for better. And when you look at this, I mean, you start to look, there are women and children everywhere. Women are often impacted more by climate change, but for Veronica, they also carry great potential for initiating positive change. And while we were traveling, we met someone whose work in El Salvador revolves around that very idea, that women can and should be agents of change in their community. Bueno, mi nombre es Zacarías Bernabe Martínez. 
This is Zacharias. He's from San Salvador, the capital city of El Salvador. We had the chance to meet him in Indiana, where he was sharing stories of climate change impact on tour. Before we get too far in, we want to thank our translator, Zuleha Prieto, for making this conversation possible. Zacharias works for an organization called Enares, a nonprofit that works with poor and marginalized communities in El Salvador to promote health and education and community development. Much of their work revolves around an agroecological school where they promote women's rights through agricultural education. La escuela se fundó este alrededor de unos 10 años. The school was founded around 10 years ago. It's uh, within an agroecological farm. So what the farm produces is then sold and that helps sustain our child development centers. And my role is to promote that women participate in the school. In El Salvador, a country with a concentrated population of 6 million people, the effects of climate change are very evident, he said, especially in rural communities where Anares focuses their work. So the effects of climate change are right in front of us. Most people in rural areas of El Salvador make a living off the land. Zacarias himself grew up on the farm, a coffee farm in a small town called San Francisco, Chinameca. It was a beautiful town full of color with a great view to the sea. My house was a cob house made with earth and, and soil, and we had a view up front of mountains and waterfalls. I had a, a mother, a father, and siblings, and we were a very close-knit family. Zacarias's connection with the earth came through his parents, especially his mother. His mother taught him about the coffee crops, he said, while his father went to work in the city. My mother taught us much about the cultivation and the coffee crops. I really enjoy gardening, and I have always, I always planted a small seed in, in a bag and like to look at it and see it grow and then plant it somewhere else. Zacarias told us that armed conflict forced his family and many others to the city, disrupting the country's coffee production. But before leaving San Francisco, Chinameca, he spent some time at some beautiful rivers. He remembers incredible biodiversity, of fish and birds especially. I went recently, a couple years ago, and there was nothing. Many rivers have dried out, so that when you walk by, it doesn't look like there was a river there to begin with. Of course, for rural communities making a living off of farming, this is especially problematic. But of those people, women bear the brunt, for many of the same reasons Veronica shared. In El Salvador, digamos, el problema de lo In El Salvador, the disasters, the natural disasters that occur, affect women more. Because women are usually in charge of taking care of the family, the home, and feeding the family. So if they don't have water at home, the woman leaves the home and travels very far carrying water jugs and their child. This is why one of the primary focuses of the agroecological schools at Anades is gender equality. Not only do they teach sustainable farming techniques, they also teach about sustainable financial practices, 
entrepreneurship, and women's rights. Pero también dentro de las escuelas the agroecological schools, we also see the enforcement of human rights towards women. One of the rights that we try to make clear that people enforce are sexual and reproductive rights. Hemos visto también este el derecho humano al agua. The human right to water. El derecho económico. The financial right. Y que lo que las mujeres. And try to make sure that what the women produce through the agroecological school is, uh, in terms of money, it it's their money. También tenemos otro método. We also have another method. In that method, groups of 15 women collaborate to start up an agricultural business. Each person contributes, say, $10, and then Anades matches the total. In addition to helping with the startup, they also provide courses on bookkeeping, budgeting, and loans, as well as other business-related skills. Once they have learned that, we hand them another $1,000. And now we have groups of women that have um, their credits of 8000 or $10,000, and that's their money. And then they can give credit to other women. So educating women has a powerful ripple effect that spreads through communities and generations. Women, says Zacharias, can see climate change problems more easily, but they're also in a position of great influence and are creating a strong force in addressing it. La lucha de la mujer en el tema del cambio climático es fuerte. The fight of women on the subject of climate change is strong. The way climate change pulls in so many different issues, of inequality and spirituality, for instance, is what originally drew me in after years of relative indifference to the topic. Similarly, for Zacharias and Veronica, the impact on women is part of what keeps them engaged with climate change. And we met someone else on our travels who feels the same way. She's been surrounded by talk of climate change her whole life, but it wasn't until it wove its way into her other passions that she was gripped by it. I certainly would identify myself as a feminist, but I also am very aware that sometimes the uh, movement to break glass ceilings in the world of being in a corporate boardroom or a partner in a law firm or whatever has denigrated the work that was traditionally women's work of caring for children and community, preparing food, those things that, um, that are vital. And of all of life, what are we living for if not to protect and nourish those spaces. And so That's Karena Gore. We had the great privilege of meeting Karena at the conference we attended in Elkhart, Indiana. So I'm Karena Gore. It's K-A-R-E-N-N-A. We'd attended Karena's keynote address the night before, and afterward, we jumped on the opportunity to ask her for an interview. I'm the director of the Center for Earth Ethics at Union Theological Seminary. Karena grew up immersed in climate change rhetoric. Al Gore, vice president of the United States for eight years and author of The Inconvenient Truth, is her father. Karina told us that she never intended to go into climate change work. But during her time at Union Theological Seminary, she became intrigued by the interplay between religion and the earth and sacred ritual and unraveling Christianity's harmful institution of empire. So she founded the Center for Earth Ethics in 2014. I'm kind of curious. Um... Gender comes up a lot when talking about environmental issues. Um, mm-hmm. How do you see the interplay of those two things? I think it's 
essential, the gender component. One way is that, of course, does it matter that we have talked about Father God um, and that so many cultures, including sometimes ours, sometimes Christian, sometimes not, talks about Mother Earth? Does that matter to what we're dealing with with climate change? I think the answer is yes. I think that it's very deep in, in psychic consciousness and that disrespect for the feminine and the female is part of the ecological destruction. I'd been introduced to this concept a few times, but it wasn't until I heard Krenna explain it that I began to understand it more fully. The comparison between our treatment of the earth and our posture toward women has to do with objectification. We can see that in various ways. Uh, certainly the metaphysics of it, if you look at the, the world, the, Thomas Berry, the theologian, says um, that the universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. And I think that that's the shift we need to make. Women and girls and the feminine have been objectified, and we see that obviously now in movements around Me Too, around Time's Up, around calling out sexual abuse and harassment. That's about also objectification, and the objectification of the body of the earth that would say we can mine and drill and frack and extract, and there will be no consequence because this is ours to just take and use is the same mentality. So to instead say, oh, this is a subject that has its own voice that we can actually be in communion relationship with is critical to be able to reconcile the relationship of humanity and the earth. And one way to do that, to be in communion with the earth, is to be aware of our connection with it, which as I reflect now, is also an important part of treating a person as more than an object. One of my professors used to say that the first step in recognizing someone's dignity is realizing our similarities. Last night in in your speech, you talked about how bodies are made up of earth. Mm -hmm. The air in our lungs and the iron in our blood and the calcium in our bones. Yeah. Do you have any, like, specific stories about when you felt, like, very much a part of the earth? Well, I think it's it's very interesting. That's one reason why I do like to think about practice. Breathing in and out is not something we even do voluntarily. It happens automatically and sustains us in that way. But if you focus on it, and of course in meditation practices, many of them lead with that, then you can feel that communion. There's the Buddhist thinker Thich Nhat Hanh says that we are here to awaken to the illusion of our separateness. And I think that that can be an experience of awakening in a very joyful way to recognize the elements that are in your body. Krenna says that exploitation of the earth and exploitation of the body are inseparable. But this is more than just theory. There have been people living this reality for a very long time. People being systematically oppressed through degradation of their environment. In fact, there's a whole movement around it. The environmental justice movement emerged from the civil rights movement in the mid-1960s. And the term environmental justice was popularized in the 1980s, 
when toxic waste was dumped in a majority African-American community in Warren County, North Carolina. What followed was a report that exposed a similar trend. Communities of color and of a lower income bracket were targeted as dump sites of toxic waste and landfills. Heavily polluting industries in those communities were held less accountable to environmental regulations, all of which had serious impact on the health of the land and people. All season, we've been talking about how climate change disproportionately affects the poor and marginalized of our world, but we haven't yet been explicit about who those people are in the United States. And like we heard at the beginning of the episode from Veronica, it almost always intersects with race and class. I am like most African-Americans my age, I'm in my 60s. My family migrated to Chicago from the South, Anniston, Alabama, that famous place where when the Freedom Riders rode up, they got their butt kicks and their buses burned. Veronica's work with Faith in Place often takes her to the front lines of ecological devastation, but it's also part of her own personal history. But I grew up in Anniston, and Anniston um, is a really interesting place. It later got to be known as a Monsanto cesspool um, in terms of uh, some of the largest environmental injustice lawsuits. There, my family, from my grandmother and aunts and uncles, all were part of the class action suit with Monsanto. Most of my relatives in Anniston, if they haven't died of respiratory issues, are stricken with them, asthma lung disease, whatever, because of just the environmental realities there. But growing up, I didn't know any of that. The primary health hazard in Anniston was residual PCBs, or polychlorinated biphenyl, from the Monsanto chemicals plant in town. Records show that Monsanto was discharging up to 250 pounds of PCBs to the local stream per day in 1969. And a 2002 report by 60 Minutes noted that the EPA was aware of the dangers in the 70s, but never alerted the residents. It didn't affect Veronica's early childhood a whole lot. She still remembers playing in the dirt and eating food grown from the garden. But this sort of thing seemed to follow Veronica wherever she went. So we were in Atlanta for a few years before my family migrated to Chicago. Now I'm in the big city, you know, big, tall buildings and very different reality with nature. We moved to Argyle Gardens, another environmental cesspool. The tail end of Chicago is Argyle Gardens, part of the Chicago Housing Authority community. We had incinerators literally on the ends of every row. There was incinerators. We were surrounded by the docks and all the steel mills. Oh, and the landfills. I never knew what those mounds of little fire and smoke I would see coming out of. I thought it was a hill, some kind of, you know, sacred hill with fire coming out. Allgale Gardens is a public housing project on the south side of Chicago with a long list of environmental harms attached to its name. On one side, it's bordered by the freeway and a sewage treatment plant. Across the freeway are a couple of steel mills and a landfill. Then on the other side is the Little Columet River, which has historically been polluted by sewage and landfill runoff. Then across the river are a number of factories and a quarry. But you knew you were entering Argyle Gardens from the expressway from the Bishop Ford because of the way it smelled. It smelled like funky, rotten eggs. And you, you could say to people, you know you're getting close if you smell funky, rotten eggs or you smell sulfur. Looking back now, that was straight degradation. 
Veronica left that area in the 70s and went to college. And soon after, a woman named Hazel Johnson started organizing in Allkelk Gardens because she was tired of seeing her neighbors battle cancer and a myriad of other health issues. Hazel Johnson sat down with every president since the 70s through Obama to advocate for that community and other environmental justice communities across the country. It wasn't until Veronica left and her mother was diagnosed with asthma that she realized what they'd put up with. I, I didn't make the connection with the environment because I was a kid that young people had cancer, like LaDonna Hill died of cancer and somebody was talking about somebody's baby was born deformed and they died. You know, I'm looking back now and I get it, but then you don't know, you're not making, I don't even know if our families made the connection. This is kind of the point of the environmental justice movement, that stories like Veronica's are the norm, not the exception, for people of color in the U.S. It is no accident that both Anniston, Alabama, and Algo Gardens in Chicago are highly polluted. Part of it is that environmental harms naturally fall to groups of people with less political clout, groups that don't have the time or energy or social capital to politically organize when a factory moves in and begins dumping waste in their river. But another part, a far more sinister one, is that environmental injustice is just the latest development of the complicated relationship between race and environment in this country. And it seems like it would be hard for you to go out into nature again as an adult without feeling that kind of... Well, in. some racial issues impacted that as well. You know, one, my work um, at Faith and Place, a lot of it centers around getting diverse audiences to engage in nature and to even care about environmental stewardship, and I always say to those who ultimately had me at the table and no one of the darker hue other than me there, I would say, first of all, if you understood the history of most black and brown people to nature, um, a colonized version of nature was you were the laborer. You were not there or welcome to recreate in nature. Mm -hmm. You weren't allowed to own the most beautiful parts of nature. My grandfather and others farmed on the worst land. You fished in the, in the most polluted part of the river. And we happened to be some of those people that were also strange fruit hanging from trees, as Billie Holiday calls it, in nature. Here, Veronica is referencing a song that Billie Holiday recorded in 1939. It's a song about lynchings in the Jim Crow South, and it presents some graphic images. The first verse reads, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in a southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. It's a haunting song for a haunting part of our nation's history, and so maybe it should come as no surprise that it's not always natural or easy for people of color to connect with the environment. Now let's fast forward and it's like, can everybody just care about the environment and you know, care about the natural habitat? Well, the natural habitat was also a natural place to harbor hate and racism, slavery and sharecropping and brutality. Several years ago, I just got so sick of people saying, oh, we just don't have diverse people in nature. Why aren't they in nature? And I'm like, one, did you invite them? Did you ask them? Do they feel safe? Are they welcome? And this is one of Veronica's primary critiques of environmentalism, which is often dominated by relatively wealthy, well-educated white people. For her, the discourse they use often ignores the current realities of life in an environmental justice, or EJ, community. 
just one of the reasons why they have trouble diversifying. I think the mainstream environmental movement on a lot of levels finally coming to grips that perhaps the movement did not have a lens of environmental equity. So you had an environmental movement well-meaning people of privilege, you know, white privilege, liberals, able to have the comfort in life to think about the bigger environmental pictures, glaciers and polar bears, and that's important. And unfortunately, because initially the voice and the focus on all of this, it was, it did not resonate to people that lived in EJ communities because it seemed as if the mainstream cared about things that were so far <laughs> from the reality of the coal miner situation or the people with the flooded basements or the no green space or the no food. So you had two groups doing incredible environmental work but for very different reasons. One, for sheer survival, right? And one, because I just want, I want things to be around for a long time. Both wanted things for some of the same reasons, but different causes were pushing their buttons. It's like, if we're not careful, you have EJ people thinking that the mainstream environmentalists don't get it, don't care. We better keep screaming, you know, our own bullhorn for environmental equity and justice. And on some levels, that is exactly true. But on the other hand, I think mainstream environmental movement is finally getting it. Things are starting to change, Veronica said. Environmental justice is slowly making its way into mainstream conversations. The other reason having to get it is that you have the old school environmentalists who realize they've lost the battle. They can't do this alone. And without diversity and community inclusion, it's just not going to happen. And part of the reason we're in trouble right now is that it took mainstream, in my opinion, too long to realize that you weren't going to be able to stop this because you have another whole population who could care less about what you care about. And therefore, kept the lights on, wasn't recycling, did not compost, overconsumption, and not just support, wealthy. This is not about just black women, this is class. You know, we have, a, we have a former board member who served as an interim director here for eight months, and she said to me, Veronica, this message, you need to be out in, in my community too. Don't think because we're white, privileged, and educated that we have this, we got this all together. Absolutely not. Our conversation with Veronica reminded me of how ta Coates talks about racism in his book Between the World and Me. And as a quick warning, 
It's a fairly graphic quote. All our phrasing, he says, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience that dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions, all land with great violence upon the body. I think this is what Veronica is trying to get at when she talks about mainstream environmentalism and what Karenna and Zacharias said earlier. The bodies in that movement, like mine, are well protected and always have been. That's a disconnect, because many people in this country do not have that privilege. So when we talk about the intersection of climate change and justice, the relative sterility of those words makes me fear that we are looking away from this, as Coates says. Climate change matters because some bodies will be affected more than others, but even more than that, when we say, quote, affected by climate change, that means that some groups of people will drown, burn, starve, or collapse from thirst more than others will. And this injustice would be bad enough by itself, but it doesn't stand alone. What we're learning is that the injustices of climate change are a continuation of past harms, the modern manifestation of centuries of body brutality. This isn't an easy conversation for any of us. I find that as I'm confronted with realities as formidable and disheartening as racism and gender inequality, on top of climate change, it's hard to know where to go. But Veronica and Krenna both encouraged us to move towards it rather than away. Those places of tension are just where we should position ourselves. The church belongs at the front lines, they said. That's where we will find God. I'm a child of the Civil Rights Movement. And I say emphatically, if it wasn't for people of faith, I would not be sitting here right now. It's usually people of faith who are on the front line of the Civil Rights Movement, in their clergy collars, sometimes carrying their Bibles <laughs> and their crosses advocating for justice and equality. The idea of waiting for God means also going to the place we would find God. I think that's why Jesus was crucified. I mean, he was too busy talking about, what about them poor people? What about them women? And going into the shabins and having a drink and you know, hanging out with you know, the ladies of the night or whatever. I mean, so things just don't change without advocacy. And I think that if church communities go to these places on front lines of ecological devastation with people who are living close to the land but struggling and wait for God in those locations, then there is going to be a miraculous result.
Shifting Climates is produced in collaboration with Sarah Longenecker, who's also our photographer and web designer. Theme music is by Jesse Reist and Marilyn Miller. Intro music is by Luke Mullet. And transition and credits music is by Maria Yoder, Maya Garber, Perry Blosser, and John Bishop. A special thanks goes to the Center for Sustainable Climate Solutions, who is sponsoring this project. Shout out to Brian Souter at Faith in Place for helping us set up our interview with Veronica in Chicago and being an enthusiastic supporter of our project. And also to the Microtel in Portage, Michigan for providing us with free laundry services. You can find us at www.shiftingclimates.com. Check out the photo essay that goes along with this episode and previews of episodes to come and more. I'm Harrison Horst. And I'm Akila Mast. See you next week.